Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening or good afternoon, depending on which side of the pond you're watching this from. Uh, I'm Phil Duncalf. This is The Critical Witness, and it's our 50th uh, stream. And if you're on the podcast, uh, however you're watching this, uh, you're very welcome. If it's live, well, feel free to ask us questions as we chat. We've got quite a big topic to talk about tonight with uh, a guest and a friend, Chris Date, who's written a lot about the subject of hell and a particular view that he holds, which we'll discuss in a moment. Um, let me bring him on the screen. I've also got Dan here, uh, who's here as usual. And uh, Chris, welcome. Welcome to the show. Um, Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Tell us a little, little bit about yourself, what you're doing at the moment, um, a couple of things that you're, you're looking forward to doing, and then, um, yeah, we'll get started on the topic. Okay. Uh, I'm married for over 20 years and live with my wife and my four sons in the Pacific Northwest of the states on this side of the pond, um, Washington State specifically, the greater Seattle area. Um, and so what I'm up to right now, especially with a 17-year-old, uh, is the um, intricacies of parenting, which is, which is a whole story in and of itself. Um but that so that's that's the main thing besides being a follower of Christ. But in terms of um, theology and stuff like that, I am a uh, an adjunct professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. That is the school that is presidented by Braxton Hunter, the host of Trinity Radio. Um, and uh, I'll be teaching biblical Hebrew and some other things um, there, which I'm excited about. Also, I'm uh, the sort of face, the, the public representative of a ministry called Rethinking Hell, um, where we promote the view of hell I'm here to talk about today, um, but also we try to model and um, and encourage people on any of the various sides of the hell debate to engage in that debate in a way that produces more heat than light. Or, sorry, more light than heat. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, like that. We go for the heat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, more light than heat. So, so we want we want that. Christians. <laughs> yeah. So we want Christians to treat each other like Christians, uh, like mm. fellow bearers of the divine image, in the way that they discuss their their differing views uh rethinking hell is easy to find it's rethinkinghell.com and we also have a podcast and a bi-weekly youtube live stream and stuff like that um and there's probably more i could say but that's a good start i suppose yeah that's a great start cheers it's uh yeah a pl pleasure to have you on and uh you've you've influenced i think it's fair to say both of us in our thoughts i'm and, sorry <laughs> and studies uh and well i think that's a good thing and uh, i just want to sort of say just in, in, in a little bit of feedback to what you said i i can um agree that engaging with free thinking how you'll be treated well and you guys do model that well as uh i found in the in the facebook group as well so anyone not perfectly we don't do it perfectly we, we fall we sometimes but... that's true we are christians uh not god um so yeah no, it's, it's great having you on and um 
so it'd just it'd just be good to i guess just well while we're starting out and if this is an introduction um we're going to be mainly focused on the three three main views of hell and just be good to sort of lay what we mean so if we say traditionalism what do we mean by that if we say conditionalism what do we mean by that and then universalism or universal reconciliation what what do we mean by that so just be interested how you define traditionalism uh all those three things and dan can can i ask one one quick question before we get into that i think will be interesting people is is what obviously uh hell is quite a niche uh slightly odd topic to specialize in how Mm. did you actually how did this become an interest uh of of yours specifically yeah Yeah, um I'll try to tell the story briefly, but um, about in 2011, I had been podcasting on my own for about a year, and one of the things I had come, become accustomed to doing was having guests on my show, uh, some of whom were there to represent views that I didn't personally hold, but that I did think was within the pale of orthodoxy, and um, and I ended up having a, a gentleman by the name of Edward Fudge on the show to discuss the recently published third edition of his book, The Fire That Consumes. And um, in the course of preparing for and conducting that interview, and and The Fire That Consumes is like the seminal treatment of this topic. Um, Every uh, knowledgeable conditionalist is familiar with Edward Fudge and his work. Um, And so I had him on to interview it. And in the course of conducting that, uh, preparing for and conducting that interview, I found myself uh, having formerly been fully convinced and perfectly fine uh, in, in emotionally with the doctrine of eternal torment, um, conducting this interview left me on the fence. And in the months that followed, I uh, became convinced of conditional immortality. And starting in about December of that year, 2011, I've been defending it publicly ever since. But the re- So that's how I got into it. But the reason why I've um, made it such a focus is because what I quickly learned is that uh, this is an issue over which Christians divide in a way that I think is unjustified and that I think grieves the heart of God. Um, Mm -hmm. We as God's people have a mission um, to take a life-saving gospel to a a dying world that is in desperate need of it. And when we are biting and clawing at each other and refusing to work together and fellowship with each other because of our difference of opinion on the topic of hell, I think our mission is stymied um, and and we're not flourishing in the way that we're meant to as God's people. And so for my, what the reason I devote so much of my time and, 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 and focus and effort on this topic is because I'm trying to do my best um, to remedy that problem, not to convince the evangelical world to become conditionalists. Although if that ends up happening, I'll gladly (laughs) wear that label. Uh, But because if, if, if this debate, if I can help make this debate akin to the debate between, say, Calvinists and non-Calvinists, um, where, yeah, there are some people who treat each other like jerks, but for the most part, we get we get along, we fellowship with each other, we recognize that it's an, a non-essential of the faith that we can, dis- we can disagree over. If this topic ever gets there... I'll probably move on from this being my my focus mm. um, because my my self-appointed mission will have been accomplished. Mm. So I, I could yeah definitely resonate in that, and, and I'd say the missions that you're talking about seems a lot harder on your side of the pond. It uh, is in, in engaging with the different views in the UK. I'd say that people are a little bit more, well, may, maybe a little less committed 
the, the, the people that are committed to traditional views are there, but in terms of like the Anglican Church and the, the overall vibe of Christianity within the UK and the conversations I've had, it's, people are a little less li a little less likely to just spout you, you're a heretic, although that's kind of what I did to Dan first off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, in jest, obviously, but... Um, yeah, yeah, but you guys have your own problems too, though. We do. <laughs> the we, church we, on we, your we, side of the pond. We, we, we do. Uh, we, well, it's true. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. Um, so, so I guess going back to my question um, before Danny rudely brought in a better question. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk about those three views then. So, you got just in, in summary, you call it conditional immortality. We'd say conditionalism for short. Is there any difference between annihilationism? So I, if we focus on that definition, and I'll come back to traditionalism in a bit. Okay. Well, so I'll answer that question, um, but just for re for the record, usually what I like to do before I uh, define conditionalism is I like to define the traditional view. Um, whichever is, whichever, you, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Well, well, here, let me do it this way. Um, we at Rethinking Hell think that it's helpful to, uh, to think of the three views of hell as the points on a triangle. Um, and the reason is because uh, every, every pair of those three views shares something in common between them that the third view denies. So the doctrine of eternal torment, uh, eternal conscious punishment, there, you know, there are different ways of referring to it, traditionalism, not because people who believe it are committed to tradition, but because it has been the historically dominant view. Um, uh, this is the view that most Christians are familiar with. And according to it, uh, well, actually, I need to stay, take an even further step back. It's really important when we enter into this discussion to understand that we're not debating what happens after death. Mm -hmm. Um, the Christians since the beginning have believed, regardless of what they think happens to somebody after they have died, we all believe that at some point all humanity will have been brought back to life. And all three sides of this debate say that when those who are in Christ are brought back to life in resurrection, their formerly mortal bodies will be rendered immortal, such that they can go on living forever in the presence of God and the community of his people in physical embodied, as, as physically embodied creatures for all eternity. So they're immortal and they live forever. Now, that first view on that triangle that I mentioned, the traditional view, eternal torment, it says that when the lost are resurrected, brought back to physical life, they too will be made physically immortal and physically live forever, but in hell rather than in the good place. Mm. So this doctrine of eternal torment, you might call a form of unconditional immortality or indiscriminate or universal immortality, because basically there is no condition that any human has to meet in order to be made immortal by God when resurrected from the dead. God will render every person immortal when he raises them from the dead. It's just a matter of location rather than... That's right. Uh, that's exactly yeah. right. Now, obviously, that's a bit of a crass way of putting it, and I think traditionalists would rightly push back on that a bit. It's right. it's not just location. It's about the um, blessings or, or mm -hmm. curses of those locations. But nevertheless, it's not a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life over here or life over there. Yeah. Um, now, 
I said that it, the reason it's helpful to conceive of these as points of the triangle is because each pair of views shares something in common denied by the other by the third view. And that brings us to the second point on the triangle, the universal universal salvation, universal reconciliation. There are various ways of referring to this view. Um, but but like their traditionalist counterparts, universalists believe that when human beings are raised from the dead, um, both the saved at that time and those lost at that time will be made immortal. Doesn't matter whether they're saved or lost, doesn't matter what they believe or do, they'll be made immortal. The saved will at that point go on into the presence of God. The resurrected immortal lost will go into hell, but that won't be the end of their story. So unlike the doctrine of eternal torment, which says they will remain in hell forever, universalists say the resurrected lost will go into hell and remain there for weeks, months, years, centuries, millennia, eons, as long as it takes until they repent in saving faith and turn to Christ and are thereby rescued from hell. All right. Um, and, and, and just to be clear, I'm talking here about universalists who would self characterize as evangelical, right? There are, uh, or, or, or who would be embraced by some of us evangelicals as evangelicals. I'm not talking about here uh, outright pluralism, you know, whatever you believe, whatever you do, doesn't matter, everybody goes to heaven. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about evangelical universalists for whom salvation is only through faith in Christ and nobody will get out of hell until they express saving faith in Christ. So these two sides of the triangle, Universalism and traditionalism, they are both forms of unconditional immortality. God will grant every resurrected human being physical immortality and everyone will live forever. It's just eternal torment, they will live forever in hell. Universalism, they will live for a while in hell and repent and, and be saved. So that brings us now to the third view, because again, every pair of views shares something in common that the third view denies. And what those two views I just described share in common is this belief in unconditional immortality. We conditionalists, and this brings us to the third point on the triangle, which is known as conditional immortality, we believe, we don't we deny unconditional immortality and affirm conditional immortality. There is a condition that a resurrected human being must meet if God is going to make him or her immortal physically. And that's, that, that condition is salvation. So uh, immortality will be granted to the resurrected saved, but the lost will be raised mortal, every bit as mortal as the three of us are here right now. And their judgment for having sinned and for not being covered in the atoning blood of Christ, their judgment, their sentence, their penalty will be death as ordinarily understood. They will literally die a second time and they will never live again. Now, the reason why this view is sometimes called annihilationism is because if uh, we believe, regardless of what we think about human souls and whether they continue to exist between death and resurrection, what we conditionalists all believe is that the, the whole conscious entity that is the human person will come to an end in hell. So if human beings have non-physical souls that continue to be conscious immediately after death until being reunited with the resurrection body and resurrection, 
um, we would say, for reasons we might get into in the course of our conversation today, that it won't just be the body that literally dies again in the second death. It will also be the soul that ceases to live in that death. And if the soul is the seat of experience, of consciousness, and so forth, then the whole conscious entity comes to an end and, and it experiences nothing anymore and forever. So it is annihilation in, in, in that very proper sense of the term. So that's conditional immortality and annihilation is a nutshell. It's not two different views, but they're also not synonymous. It's more like referring to the head side of a coin and the tail side of a coin, right? Conditional immortality says who will be given immortality on the resurrection, on the day of resurrection, and it's everybody who's saved. The tails side of the coin is what will happen to those failing to meet that condition, and the answer is they will be destroyed and be no more. Hmm. Oh, this, this is a helpful distinction, actually. I'd not thought of it like the coin aspect. I think one of the points I tend to find if I use the word annihilation, and there's two sort of things that come up is um, one, there's the lump being lumped in with the cults. <laughs> uh, so JW, Jehovah's Witnesses, would believe in annihilationism and call it that. And so I think it's just quite it's quite important to clarify that conditionalism is, in terms of the evangelical sense, is includes the resurrection. There's resurrection to judgment, which, if I'm not mistaken, that's where we differ from Jehovah's Witnesses. Is that right? I think so. I'm not confident that I properly understand Jehovah's Witness eschatology, especially given that they have a distinction between um, the 144,000 who will not be resurrected, but they will instead be disembodied in heaven forever mm. versus um, the rest of human, most of the rest of humankind who will be resurrected and will live for, forever in, in bliss, but embodied as if that's somehow worse than, than being disembodied <laughs> in heaven for 140. I don't get people, but anyway, nah. but, but you're right. I do think without much confidence that there is a small subset of humanity that according to Jehovah's Witnesses will not be raised they will be annihilated at death right. and we and we deny that uh whether we're dualists who believe in consciousness between death and resurrection or not we all deny mm. that uh that that's that death is the immediate end of the story no resurrection and judgment is coming too yeah cool um so i just before i was saying before we started this because because i've looked into it is trying to figure out which rabbit hole to to avoid and which potentially to go down in terms of introductions is there any other sort of like introductory things down that you can think of that we need to like uh well i, I think ask. well since in the discussion before we get too specific um it's probably just talking about um the kind of um the kind of historic the sort of genealogy of these of these views you know in terms of amongst sort of early christians so yeah. um was was there a kind of plurality plurality of of, of christian views in regards to sort of uh condition of immortality uh, the traditionalist view and the, and the universalist view were there was was there from the outset was there kind of agreed uh, agreement on one of these or was there always a kind of plurality of, of, of views very early on so I think that's quite important um, you know when it comes to this debate is it because I think a lot of people view this as um, you know as reading today you know about this is like a modern phenomenon like mm. evangelicalism is under attack from this this new uh, this new view of, uh, of of understanding hell and, and anthropology and things like that. So, you know, is this something new, uh, or is this something that has um, you know some longevity to it? 
Well, it's definitely not new, but the rest of your question, uh, the answer will depend on which um, analyst of that history you're talking to. And you're talking to a conditionalist who uh, will give you an answer from his uh, perspective, um, which I happen to think is the right one. Um, <laughs> I do think there's virtually no question that by the time of, say, the ecumenical creeds or the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition, um, by the time those were written, there's no doubt, um, there's simply no debate, even though some people pretend there is, that there was a plurality of all three views. Um, in fact, representatives of multiple of those three views, if not all three, contributed to the writing of those creeds. Um, they did not. Uh, and if you look at the writings of people like some of the staunchest believers in eternal torment in that day, you know, in those couple of centuries right around there, like Augustine, for example, um, he doesn't he doesn't say that people who hold to other views of hell than him are heretics, but he's aware of their existence. He might even call them foolish, but he doesn't. He calls he calls them good natured like he talks about them positively warmly even though he just he thinks they're foolish um so there's so so the church fathers by this point didn't anathematize each other there weren't any e e even the uh, second council of constantinople in uh, the early 500s i think it was um although alleged by believers in eternal torment to have condemned universalism and conditional immortality, the reality is it didn't. It definitely didn't con uh, condemn conditional immortality, and whether it condemned universalism is up for debate. So by, so in, by the time of the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, right around there, yes, there was absolutely a plurality. The cr Christians did not anathematize each other or say, or say they were heretics if, if they disagreed. But I do think there was more of a consensus from the get-go. So um, the earliest Christian documents that I'm aware of anyway are the likes of Clement of Rome, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, the Didache, and the, the Epistle of Barnabas. Um, all four of those, definitely Clement of Rome and Ignatius were writing right around 100 A.D., so we're talking, depending on when you date the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John, you're talking about really close to right when the canon was closing. Um, now, I think the entire New Testament was written prior to 70 AD, but that's a, another discussion. The point is 100 AD is very early, and it's the earliest we have. Um, and then the Epistle of Barnabas and the Didache were written either a little earlier or a little bit later, but we're talking all about this this sort of the same time frame and i argue in various places shows that i've done podcasts and so forth that those four writers um evince clear belief in conditional immortality and annihilationism um, and you see this continued into the second century. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, for example, the author of Against Heresies, um, an absolute masterpiece and continues to be res highly respected to this day, um, he too appears to have been a conditionalist. He says, for example, that uh, the, the, the God grants to the redeemed length of days, continuance and length of days forever and ever. But the lost deprive themselves of continuance and length of days forever and ever. Um, and there's more that could be said there. And, and Irenaeus is writing that right around 150 AD. Um, and prior to this point, I see no evidence of any Christians who taught eternal torment. But then in that latter half of the second century, from 150 to 200, you get the other two views arising. So you see traditionalism or, or eternal torment, you see it uh, um, affirmed by two writers in that 
uh, 50 years, one of whom was named Tatian of Adiabene and the other one Athenagoras of Athens. They both affirm eternal torment, but they're not the only, that's not the only novel view there. You also have Origin of Alexandria and Clement of Alexandria right in that same time frame coming out in favor of universalism. So the, the, the narrative that I offer that I think makes the best sense of the data as I see it is that the earliest Christians inherited from the disciples that discipled them and from the scriptures themselves, belief in conditional immortality and annihilationism. But in the latter half of the second century, the other two views arose and we could talk about and speculate about why those other two views arose. Um, what seems to be the reason why one of them won, namely eternal torment, is because Augustine, one of the four great fathers of the church, um, put a stamp of approval, so to speak, on eternal torment, and it's been the dominant view ever since. That would be my historical reconstruction. Mm, okay. Well, pres presumably, obviously, you, 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 look, you look at the, the New Testament scriptures, and you obviously see, you read the, you, you're reading the same scriptures as someone who uh, you know, embraces uh, the traditional view. Yes. And you would say, you know, they, on a prima facie reading, they seem to support uh, a conditional, you know, a conditionist uh, view, perhaps. Not just a prima uh, facie reading, but the deeper you go, it's just more and more yeah. and more conditionalism that, all the way. Yeah. So, so yeah, so you, you, you read in that, but then a traditionalist will read the same text and would, and would for their own, you have your presupposition, they have their own presupposition, would understand that to, to support uh, the traditionalist view. So presumably... That would also be the case with those early, uh, you know, church fathers and things, and the ones that you're, you know, presumably that you could be argued against. It, you're, you're simply just reading that into your view in the same way that a traditionist does, mm -hmm. um, because I think, uh, as much as you know, even with my own view, I would read those texts and I could see how someone who held the traditionist view could quite easily embrace what they're saying uh, without. Uh, you know, having to embrace conditionalism. Mm -hmm. Well, what they think they're saying anyway, or or what they're saying as they understand it, yeah. So I guess building on that, and maybe as a part of the title of this stream, I, I guess you'd be interested to look at this, the way that we interpret the Bible. It, it, do you, I'd be interested in how you'd explain the way that you read it. Maybe even that comes into the story of how you, became a conditionalist a little bit. Did the way that you read the Bible change at all uh, as you were digging into it? What kind of things would you... Yeah, so I am, no, no, the way I read the Bible did not change. Um, for very soon after becoming a Christian, roughly 22 years ago, um, I... Uh, I had I came into the faith knowing only two things about what Christians believe. One is that I, uh, I, I believe in the Bible, and two is those who aren't Christians are going to suffer forever in hell. And I embraced that view, and, and very soon on after becoming a Christian, I defended that view in discussions with Jehovah's Witnesses and, and others. Um, and up until 2011, like I mentioned earlier, um, I embraced this view without, uh, without any concern, and it was because I thought that it was consistent with the kind of interpretation that I'd been, that I was convinced is the right way to go about trying to interpret scripture, which is known as uh, the, the grammatical historical method of exegesis or historical grammatical, one or the, one or the <laughs> other way of pairing those two, those two adjectives. Um, 
And basically, according to this, uh, uh, I mean, there's so much that can be said about this, but in, but yeah. in short, what we're doing when we're doing grammatical historical exegesis is trying to use the various tools that really one employs in any kind, in interpreting any kind of literature, um, especially the older literature gets, in order to uh, best discern what the author was trying to say in the historical cult uh, context in which he was uh, in which he lived, and in and using the language that he employed. Um, so this is in contrast with some other kinds of interpretive methods like reader response, where um, you are uh, you are looking at you are you are very intentionally looking at how your personal experience, your personal situation and context might bring about in you readings that differ from people in other contexts. And then and, and then treating that as if that's valid. Right. I, I dispute that. I don't think that's I, I do think that context will allow some people to see to start to see things that maybe other people don't but what matters is whether that proves to be consistent with the grammatical historical method because what we're again what we're trying to get at is what the author meant with what the author said so yeah. we use you know that, that that's why the words are grammatical and historical we're, we're looking we're looking at how the words and grammar that the author used in the language he used at the time that he used it um, how that informs what we should understand the author to be saying. And then the historical side of it, we're looking at what context, uh, theological, cultural, etc., an author was in when they produced right. that words, because that's going to inform how we understand what the author was saying. And I think that is the the gold standard for understanding what uh, what the Bible says. Now, of course, we are humans. We need the Holy Spirit's illumination because we're naturally opposed to God. And um, that is overcome through the Holy Spirit's illumination and things like that. But the point is, the best method for understanding what the text says is the grammatical historical method. And um, I have not changed that since becoming a conditionalist. And it was, in fact, employing that method that convinced me of conditionalism. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any sort of emotional reservations about the doctrine of eternal torment. And to this day, I, if, if I were to become convinced of eternal torment again, I would be okay with that. God yeah. is God. He knows far better than I do what is just and what is not. And I'm, I'm all right with that. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, when I was exploring the topic, my emotions were pulling me as hard as possible to remain a believer in eternal torment. Because as you're starting to probably get a picture of now, I'm very conservative. And I knew that um, if I were to change my mind on this topic, it would be a real problem in the conservative evangelical spheres that I travel in. So I didn't want to become convinced of conditionalism, but my authority is scripture. And the way I think we ought to interpret scripture is by using the tools that comprise grammatical historical exegesis. And it was precisely that approach that convinced me that the biblical authors under the spirit, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, um, taught conditionalism with what they mm. said. And so I had to subject myself. I had to bend my knee as painful as doing so was. Mm. Oh, this really, sorry, you hit, hit on a topic that I think is really quite important and probably just as a surface level um, thing that I've seen in terms of the intro, when you started, your introduction to Christianity, there's two things, you know, Jesus died for you and ECT, eternal torment, is, is the bit that you're, you're being saved from. And uh, I recognize that over here, there's there's videos within sort of introductions to Christianity courses, so Alpha and uh, Exploring Christianity, and they're, they're great, well-produced videos, 
but when it comes to the doctrine of hell they'll they'll very clearly go from his texts that show you what life is and what jesus has done to here's some almost metaphor here's some images here's some animation um so for one example i've seen is it then starts using the language of separation <laughs> and it uses the language of um it's horrible and it's um it's never ending and that's within the framework of your introduction to christianity and so you do sort of absorb this as this is what i have to believe to become part of this community and i i totally see that uh in, in what we well even before i changed my own views in, in, in similar ways that's what i was defending well and and just to add to what you're saying i picked up that Christians believe in eternal torment before becoming a Christian. That was kind of my point, was that um, raised in America, um, seeing comic strips and movies and cartoons and all these kinds of things, you don't need to be in any sort of theological or Christian circles to pick up from the, from the larger culture that what Christians believe in is eternal torment. So that's what I mean when I say when I became a Christian, there were two things I knew. What I mean is I knew those even before becoming a Christian. Right. right. Um, and I didn't question that uh, when I became a Christian um, and didn't for, like I said, another 10 years. Well, it was probably reinforced when you became a Christian. Indeed uh, and, it was. Uh, and that's that's, uh, that's something that I've definitely seen. Um, sorry, Dan, I interrupted you. Go for it. Oh, no, it's all right. No, just like, another question while I was thinking is just going back to the language of separation. So, I mean, there is some precedent for using the language of separation. Essentially, you go back to 1 Thessalonians uh Second Thessalonians one nine. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it is it is talking about you know being shut out. You know, there is, there is, is a, it? There is a, <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we can get into this. But yeah, if you it. read it, you know, for those of us who are not experts in you know Greek, you know Arabic and, and Hebrew, etc., um, then you know you read that text and you read like the NIV and it says shut out. Now, if I read shut out, then the language of separation does make sense. Now, yes. you may well argue. That that's not a very good, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, a very good way to understand that text. But that is what English text we read, uh, and so it's not, um, you know, on the face of it, it's not unreasonable to talk about the language of, of, of separation. I mean, what mm. would you what would you say in response? Well, I would say first of all that I think there are better texts to substantiate um, an argument for separation. Um, so, for example, in Matthew twenty five forty one, Jesus. Uh, describing the final judgment says that the king will say to the lost, depart from me. Right? That sounds like an emphasis on separation. Or, um, you know, when, when Adam and Eve sin and they had been told that on the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die, God rejects them from the garden. And that sounds to some people like separation. So I think those are better examples than the one you offered. And the reason is because the one you offered has nothing at all to do with separation, at least not in that sense of the word. You see, the words shut out are uh, the, the NIV. The NIV is a good Bible. I'm not at all casting aspersions on the NIV, but it is more of a dynamic thought for thought type of translation than something like, say, the ESV or the NASB. And thought for thought translation has its pros and its cons. One of the pros is that we all know anybody who has done any sort of study of multiple languages knows how easily it is to get lost in translation. Um, imagine if a thousand years from now, when, if this happens, English is a long since dead language and imagine that some archeologist or something discovers 
a text written from 21st century America or, or, or UK in which somebody writes, it was raining cats and dogs. Well, if they translate that into a, a destination language as raining cats and dogs, they may think that the author was talking about animals falling down from the sky, right? But that's, of course, not what we mean. And so thought for thought translation is is doesn't need to be taken seriously because the if you do a thought for thought translation of that you would say it's something like it was it was raining very heavily right so the NIV is good i like it but in this case they've gone too far because the the all the words shut out from in the NIV are the translation of a single greek preposition a preposition is a is a as a, a word like to or from or on or upon or into um, it's like a connecting word of sorts and the greek preposition here is apa and it just means from that's all it means um, now, in Greek, many Greek prepositions do have directionality sort of baked into them. And apa is a, um, it does mean more than just sort of a generic from. It's more like th there's direction to it, from, to. But, um, but the same kind of thing is true when we say something like a ship was blown from the water. Right, we we don't we don't have to say shut out from the surface of the water or something to capture the directionality of that preposition, and in the same way, all that Paul is saying in Second Thessalonians one nine is that um, he, he says they will pay the penalty of everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and there are arguments to be made, and that I have recently made that that Paul is using language that was used in the intertestamental literature um, to communicate annihilation. Um, in a recent episode of Rethinking Hell Live, I think I did a discussion of the Psalms and Odes of Solomon, and I think that's where I cover that point. But even but even besides that, when just before talking about everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, Paul uses um, this language of flaming fire and vengeance. And he's using terms that appear together in only one other place in all of scripture and that's Isaiah 66:15 where God's enemies are slain and then the scene ends at the end of Isaiah 66 with God's enemies corpses being um, strewn about on the ground and being consumed by fire and maggots so when Jesus so when Paul says destroyed from the presence of the Lord he doesn't mean separated and shut out from the presence of the Lord there to remain in conscious existence forever he's saying <laughs> that the, the everybody is in the presence of the Lord, um, especially if we're talking about the day of judgment. Um, but when the wicked are blasted out of his presence by execution, when they're destroyed, they won't be in his presence anymore, any more than when you separate a branch from a tree. It's not connected to the tree anymore. But what happens to a branch when you separate it from a tree? It dies. And the same is true if you separate a human being from the source of all life. Okay. Uh, if I can get to my question that, that, I, that, that um, I was going to ask before. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so general consensus is from about the time of Augustine, uh, the traditionist view became the dominant view. Um, obviously, reasons for that, the adoption of sort of certain Greek philosophical assumptions and anthropology, with, you know, generic Greek view, you know, that the the, phys the the body was a kind of prism for, the, for this soul. Um, and so, obviously, uh, it had to go somewhere. Um, I, 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 I'd be interested to know what is the kind of biblical support for um, a uh, your Im immortality being conditional rather than something that we have uh, 
um, that's sort of intrinsic. Uh, what would be the case? The case that that seems like quite a, quite a key part of the conditionalist um, cases that are that our immortality is conditional on, upon God's grace and not something mm. that we... Um, so would you be able to chat a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So in 1 Corinthians, I can think of two examples right off the top of my head, and then we can go into even further detail if you like. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50, look what Paul says. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, just pausing there for a moment. What he's saying, flesh and blood is a Hebraic term of art referring to mortality, to mortals. All right. So so he's saying mortals cannot inherit the kingdom of God, um, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And, and he's talking about the saints here. That's not to say he's denying that the lost will be resurrected. He does that. He affirms that elsewhere. But here he's talking about the resurrection of the saints. So he goes on in verse 53 to say for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality and when the imperishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality then shall come to pass a saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory and he's quoting a septuagint a variant of the septuagint the the greek translation of the hebrew old testament that was completed in the centuries leading up to christ um, he's quoting a variant of the septuagint in isaiah 26 uh, I think it's 26, maybe 25. But anyway, um, God says he will one day swallow up death forever. So the point is, if immortality were something that was intrinsic to our being bearers of the divine image, or, or if God created us in such a way that we were um, naturally and forever immortal, what sense does it make sense for Paul to say this immort or this mortal must put on immortality mm. it doesn't even it doesn't make sense um another one is in the book of romans um in Ro romans 2 6 paul says he will god that is render to each one according to his works verse 7 to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor in immortality god will give eternal life well, wait a minute. I thought we were all immortal, right? If we're immortal, what need is there to seek for immortality? Of course, of course, we don't naturally have immortality. God's got to grant it to us. So those are just two, even just on the surface, just a surface reading tells you that, no, we are not innately immortal. And there's a lot more that I could say about this. Uh, but in the interest of time, I'll, I'll let you guys drive the conversation. Yeah, I think it's... The one that I'd go to on, to on top of those, and I, th I think it is a bit debated, well, it's obviously debated, but the, around Genesis and the, the sort of discussion around Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, you've got the whole idea is that um, you have eternal life with God. That's the that's Eden. And what happens when they eat the fruit, they get, and I guess that's where separation comes out of as well. That would be another one that I'd think you could get an idea of separation, but in the sense of um, the curse, the curse is you shall surely die. And when they are removed from the garden, they no longer have access to that life. And that's what God says right in the end of the curse, isn't it? That um, I can't remember the exact words, but it's pretty much they will not live forever, lest they live forever in Genesis 3. Yeah, it's Genesis um, three twenty two. Lest Adam reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat 
and thereby live forever. And then therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. So it's explicit that the reason he's being kicked out of the garden is so he can't eat from that tree and thereby live forever. Yeah. So, but, but I will say yeah. this. This is not to say there wasn't, in fact, death that day. And when I say that, I don't mean, I'm not using code language. I'm not talking about spiritual death. There is no concept here of so-called spiritual death. The the death that was warned of here um, in Genesis 2.17, on the day you eat the fruit, you shall surely die. It was There was a death. <laughs> See, the, the, the you shall surely die is not a prophecy. It's it's a threat, right? It's a, it's a it's a prescription of a penalty. If you do this, this is what will happen to you. And we have plenty of examples in Scripture where God mercifully does not carry out um, that the threat, and very often that's because there's been a substitute. I mean, that's kind of built into the very structure of the Mosaic Law, is substitution. Well, recall that Je that Adam and Eve had after they sinned covered up their their uh, private parts with plants. But God didn't let that and didn't let that stay in place. He said he he makes them wear instead garments of skins, and the word there refers to the the flesh of an animal turned into clothes after the animal's been killed. So there was something of a proto substitutionary sacrifice right here in the beginning. The first death was indeed on that very day, um, and it was by the means of that substitutionary death that Adam's and Eve's sin was temporarily covered, allowing them to procreate and start the human the human race. Hi there, this is Phil Dunkoff. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe, share the episode, and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. Excellent. Uh, any, I, I, I'm glad you touched on the spiritual death because that's generally what comes up as a sort of refutation of, of the position that what was what was happening in the garden was only physical death, and that was. Um, but I've also I've also heard that the the you shall surely die is used as a defence for the traditional view that well because they didn't die then and there in the instant they ate. Therefore, there's some sort of existence around uh, death. Uh, you still exist. And then that read generally in connection with Ephesians 2, that you were dead in your sins in Colossians 2 or 3, um, and where you're dead in your sins, that phrase that Paul uses. So I guess in that, why, what would your response be as a, a traditionist pushes back on those verses? There is this concept in the Bible of being dead but alive. Why does that not apply to when you're like the second death? What? Why doesn't it apply to after judgment? Yeah. Well, there's a lot there we could explore, but I want to begin by asking a question in turn. Um, and and I I'm a movie fan, and so I typically ask this question in the context of a movie. But if neither of you are familiar with it, then I'll do it without the movie reference. But have either of you guys seen and, and, and were fans of the Karate Kid Part Two? Uh, it's where... been a long time since I watched it. Okay, 
Well, then never mind. I'll I'll skip that. But people that are watching, you might know what I'm about to, what I'm talking about when I mention the phrase I'm about to. But when you have, um, when you have family members that are um, at odds with each other and that, and it gets so at odds that they just don't want to have anything to do with each other anymore. um, You often hear one of them say something like, you're dead to me, or I'm dead to you. Mm -hmm. And the question I ask people is, look, when when, you, when somebody says that, do you think that they're using some kind of different definition of death? Do you think they're trying to, they're trading upon some kind of spiritual death or some kind of death of separation? No, they're using death metaphorically or, or proleptically. I'll explain what that means in a second. But what, what, when somebody says you're dead to me or I'm dead to you, what they're saying is you're as if dead to me. It's, it's as if you are dead to me because I'm not going to have anything to do with you any longer. And the point of all of that is just to say, for some reason that I am, I really able to understand when Christians come to these texts and they read these things, they forget how, that we're, that, that, that the text they're reading was written by humans, <laughs> you know, and we humans use language flexibly and, and we use metaphors. And of course, metaphors trade on literal meanings. So... So all of that preferatory material out of the way, prolegomena, if you will, <laughs> I think that what Paul is doing in those texts, and, te- and, and in, I think similar things are being done in other texts, is he is using the literal reality of life and death as a metaphor for either union or separation from God. It's not that death is separation, it's any more than it's that life is unity with God. It's that y- unity with God is like life and separation from God is like death in important ways that make those apt metaphors for a life, a a, a physical life, but apart from God. Um, So I think that's one possibility, but there's also this concept of prolepsis. So prolepsis is when you speak about a future reality that is so certain that it's, that you can speak of it as if it's in the present. And a good example, or one I often use is, you know, imagine that a death row criminal who's been rotting away in prison and awaiting his execution, he eats his last meal and then he is uh, taken by the guards to, down the green mile, so to speak, to the electric chair. And on the way that the guards are marching him down the, the, the green mile, all the other prisoners in the cells along the way, they're sort of banging cups against the bars and they're saying, dead man walking, right? Dead man walking. They are not saying that they're not using the word death in some sort of other meaning. They're, they're, not, they're not trading on some other definition of death. What they're doing is saying this person is as good as dead because mm. in a few moments they will be dead. And so I think that, uh, and there are examples of this in scripture. I don't, I don't have any um, off the top of my head. But, um, but the point is, I think what Paul is doing is saying that when you believers were not yet believers, you were as good as dead. Your death was, you were doomed to ultimately die. Mm. Um, and so he could say you were dead. Uh, but when you became a believer, you went from being doomed to die to being guaranteed eternal life. Mm-hmm. You were as good as alive because that life is guaranteed to you and you can count on it. Mm. Now, 
Uh, and and it, and these aren't mutually exclusive categories, by the way. He could be doing something both with metaphor and prolepsis, and maybe there are some other explanations as well. But what strikes me as the least plausible option is we go, we, we read that, and the first thing we assume is that Paul is here trading on some other definition of death. There's no basis for thinking that, um, especially when 99.999% of the uses of life and death language throughout Scripture are talking about ordinary life and death. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. I appreciate you going into that. And uh, just just aware, we've probably, I think one of the things that happens with this discussion, maybe we've just done that to you as an example, is you, Dan asked you about two Thessalonians, and then we're in Ephesians, and then we're in Genesis, and then we're sort of talking about the whole overarching reach of, of Scripture, and that, that definitely does happen. But I think it just in the terms of talking about death, and it, I find when discussing this and part of the reason that I've dug in so extensively in this myself is it just made far better sense of the symbolism we have naturally with it as Christians. Who are we? Well, we're baptized people. What does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes the, the going through death, the, the, the going into the grave, the, the death and the resurrection. And within those, that language that we use every day that we talk, we watch somebody being baptized. We, we don't go, well, just so you know, you're just passing through spiritual death because otherwise you'd be uh, or, or passing through physical death, but your, your soul would be alive in the water really. And it'd be, it might, <laughs> and, and then resurrection happens and everything's reunited. Uh, we, we don't, we, we assume that through the scriptures that the whole point of Christianity is that we, that's, that's our end. That's the curse. The, the ages of sin is death. That grave is what we are, are aiming at naturally speaking. But what Christ has done is he's enabled us to pass through those waters and rise resurrected like he did. And that language is just such a natural image of what well, God's judgment would do is we will pass through fire and not be burnt because we are in Christ. And so it's, it's all those kind of images start to make a bit more sense, I find, when you remove this idea of eternal torment, or at least the assumption of eternal torment. And I think there's so much that's assumed well eternal torment must be true so it must be in this verse somewhere <laughs> uh, and then and then we kind of draw that out the text because it must be there and once i started removing that filter that really helped me work out well i don't have to apply this is spiritual death this is physical death this is maybe a little bit of the both and and you get a little bit more like well what is the scripture saying well, it says it's death okay that's what it means. I, I get, I get death. It means you're not alive. You're not existing. Um, but, that, but then allowing that tension, <laughs> where there are times where it's like, actually, well, may, maybe. And I kind of, I guess that, that we can go into a bit of the weeds with with that question. So I'll, I'll pull myself back from going down that road. Um, I've got just. Oh, have you got? I, I have got a question because it's one that someone has asked uh, prior to this chat. I, I guess. We've talked a little bit about scripture, but it'd be just really good if what are the the go to passages or have we covered them? The go to passages that would go right, this is how why I see conditionalism clearly. Uh, a scriptural support that your sort of framework would, would come from. Well, so it's funny, just yesterday or was it yesterday? It might have been the day before, I was on another stream, another show, um, and they asked me for like what you just said what are the best mm. three texts for your and, and 
when 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 you realize when you come to learn that it's on like every page, it's hard to pick three. But here's mm-hmm. what I can do. Let me give you one or two texts from each of uh, three or four categories of texts, um, just to show how comprehensive the case for conditional is. To get a little hint of how comprehensive the case is. So first of all, um, we we talked about uh, texts in some texts that seem to indicate that immortality is conditional. In Genesis 3, um, we looked at Romans 2, and we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll add one more. In Luke <clears throat> chapter 20, verses 35 and 36, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus is talking to a Sadducee, if my memory serves me correctly, and or to Sadducees, plural, and he says, uh, the sons of this age um, marry and are given in marriage, but then he talks about his people and he says, but those who are counted worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead will not marry anymore or be given in marriage um, for they will not, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So here in Luke 20, 35 and 36, Jesus is talking about two groups of people, the lost and the saved and the saved, he says, will be raised unable to die And he says the reason they will be unable to die is because they will have been made equal to angels and they are sons of God, neither of which are true of the lost. Well, if the saved are going to be unable to die anymore because of those reasons, then um, the lost will be able to die. Um, And we've already talked about some of the other texts in that category. A second category of texts is um, uh, texts which affirm substitutionary atonement. So um, uh, the the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, and notice I didn't say penal substitutionary atonement, although I do affirm penal substitutionary atonement, which is the idea that Christ bore the punishment we deserve in our place. But if we take away the punishment thing, we still are left with substitutionary atonement, which is something that I think even people who believe in other atonement models like Christus Victor and stuff can affirm. And according to substitutionary atonement, Jesus bore in our place what was coming to us so that ultimately we don't have to. Hmm. And um, we see this even in the actual words that are used, like as as, as um, precise as individual prepositions. So Greek grammars, uh, sorry, Greek grammarians um, that have studied Greek New Testament Greek will tell you that there's a couple of Greek prepositions that have this idea of substitution baked right into them. One of those prepositions is the um, uh, the, the preposition huper. Uh, it's, it's what comes into English as hyper. And, um, and in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, for is that Greek preposition, huper, that he might bring us to God. And how did he suffer? What did he suffer in this substitutionary way? And then the text goes on, being put to death in the flesh. See, death, the kind, we all know when we're not talking about the hell debate that what Jesus did in our place was die. But then when we, get, when we start talking about hell, all of a sudden people who are traditionalists start talking about his suffering instead. Or they talk about spiritual death, which, by the way, the idea that the second, the, the second divine person of the triune Godhead spiritually died or was hmm. separated from the Father, I think comes pretty darn close to heresy if it doesn't get right into it. That's a division in the Godhead that that I don't think we can countenance. But anyway, but even if you did, even if you wanted 
to say that what Jesus, the kind of death Jesus bore in our place was a spiritual one, Peter here is explicit that he's talking about his physical death. And he says that he did that who pair the unrighteous for in the place of, in the stead of the unrighteous. And what does that tell us? It tells us that what was coming to us was not life and immortality in pain. It was death. Mm. And there are other texts I could bring to bear as well. Yeah. One yeah. third category that I'll mention is just texts that promise death and destruction to the wicked. And here's, we could go through numerous, countless, dozens upon hundreds of texts, but I'll look at just one. Uh, Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says to his disciples who are facing the very real threat of being killed by their persecutors, he says to them, don't fear men who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. And there, uh, there are reasons we can get into if you want that, that make it clear he's not merely saying can, but won't. He, no, he's saying this is what will happen. And number two, the Greek word translated destroy, used in the way that Jesus is using it here, is, is, a, is an emphatic way of saying kill. Kind of like what we might see as the difference between kill versus murder, or kill versus slay, right? It's, it's, a, mm. it's a more emphasized, more emphatic way of saying kill. Um, and so, for example, the text in all, all the synoptic gospels say that Herod wanted to destroy the baby Jesus. And Herod did not want to lose or ruin or waste the baby Jesus. He wanted to kill him. And same mm -hmm. thing with the Pharisees and the adult Jesus. They wanted to destroy Jesus. They didn't want to lose, ruin, or waste him. They wanted to kill him. So what Jesus is saying is that men, when they kill you, they only kill your body. They can't kill your soul. But, when, but in hell, God will kill both body and soul in Gehenna. And mm -hmm. since a body, when it is killed, becomes lifeless, inert, inanimate, motionless, that's what's going to happen to souls when they are killed in hell as well. And once again, I could go on and on and on with a whole bunch of other texts, um, but hopefully that gives people an idea of where we're coming from. Definitely does. Um, Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I guess what would be helpful, I guess, build, building on that is what, what, are the, what are the main sort of texts that, um, well, we all know, we all know them. We worth, I'd be interested for, for people listening to, to, to see your interpretation of the main texts we kind of look at and kind of we use to support the traditionist view. Um, you know, for instance, Revelation 14, 10 to 11, where, you know, the lost are being tormented in the presence of Jesus and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Now, that's the sort of text that someone who supports traditions you will go to and think, well, that clearly, you know, is describing eternal conscious torment. So what, what, are, what are maybe some of the, the more popular texts that people appeal to? And why, why is the conditionist interpret, interpretation of those uh, much more persuasive than the, than the standard uh, traditional interpretation? Yeah, very, very good question. Um, and, and you've named one of what we conditionalists sometimes affectionately call the big three. Um, Revelation 49 to 11 is one of them. Um, a second one is also in Revelation chapter 20 verses 10 to 15. And then the third is Matthew 25 verses 41 and 46. And I'll just throw a fourth one in for good measure, which is the verse that uh, the text that I first uh, that I looked at in back in 2010 or early 2011 that first got me thinking maybe i'm wrong about this and that's mark 9 48 where jesus says that in gehenna or hell their worm will not die and their fire fire will not be quenched so let me go through those um in 
the reverse order just about that I gave them, and I'll, I'll make it I'll make it as quick as I can. As as okay. Phil as Phil knows in particular, I could spend a long time on these, and I probably <laughs> will spend longer than you'd like. But I'm going to try my best. So good, Mark. Mark nine forty eight is remarkable. It, it's it's. It's remarkable, and like I said, it, it's what got me thinking. Maybe I maybe I'm wrong about this. See, I was in a I was doing ministry with Glenn Peoples at the time on a mutual friends ministry, and we were I was challenging him on physicalism, and I turned to Matthew ten twenty eight, which we looked at a moment ago, which talks about body and soul, and he under he recognized. Um, that that was something that had to be addressed from a physicalist perspective, but he but he turned it on me and he was like, well, but don't you see the don't you see the annihilationism here? And at the time, I was like, no, I didn't really see it. And he and I said, well, so what do you make of Mark nine forty eight? And that's this one where Jesus says that in Gehenna or hell, their womb will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And he said something to me like, did you know that Jesus isn't using that didn't isn't coming up with that language on his own? He's quoting something. And when I looked what up what he's quoting in Isaiah 66, 24, I discovered that the things that are the things whose worms aren't dying and whose fire isn't being quenched are corpses, carcasses. They're the dead bodies of God's slain enemies. The Hebrew is explicit, pagarim, it means carcasses, corpses. And the and, and what I discovered then, as I continued to explore, is that the language of a, of a fire not being quenched all throughout Scripture refers to the fiery fiery wrath of God being irresistible. You can't put it out. Quench doesn't mean die out. It means put out. And if you can't put out a fire, it completely burns up. And that's how it's used. That's how that expression is used throughout the Scriptures. And then the worm not dying thing is is a really unique. Uh, picture or metaphor that we don't see anywhere else in scripture with arguably one exception and that's in um, Jeremiah 7 uh, verse 30 and following and, and there's a parallel in I think Deuteronomy but but where it says that um, uh, God's going to slay his enemies their bodies will be left unburied because there won't be room to bury them all and uh, the, scab the beasts and the birds that feast upon those carcasses won't be frightened away you see, it's not a promise that they that these scavenging beasts and birds will forever have carrion to feed upon. It's a promise that they won't be able to be frightened away and thereby prevented from doing what they're trying to do, which is eat those corpses. So the worm that won't die, the, the word worm there in Isaiah's lexicon is a maggot. And it's not just Isaiah, but um, uh, but it's a maggot, the kind of maggot that eats on uh, that eats bodies. So what it means that these dead bodies will, their worm will not die and their fire, fire will not be quenched. It means that the, the, the corruption, the, the deterioration of their body caused by maggots that eat corpses won't be stopped. It won't be um, uh, resisted. And the fire that is burning those bodies up won't be stopped. The fire will do its job. The picture is simultaneously both one of the annihilation of God's enemies and at the same time, the utter shame in which they will die such that they will be remembered forever in contempt. And, uh, and that was a long explanation, but the point, but going back to what I said about how this got me thinking that maybe this, maybe I was wrong about this was the fact that Jesus is talking about a text in which it's explicitly corpses whose worms won't die mm -hmm. and, uh, whose fire will not be quenched. So Mark 948, not only doesn't challenge our view, it's a challenge to the traditional view, even though, um, people are trained to read it differently. The other thing I'd just ask as a sort of traditionalist pushback, there's at least one 
fairly well-known traditionalist who's written in one of the counterpoint um, books that there's in the text, while it says corpses, it can be uh, sort of assumed that they're talking about some sort of level of consciousness in there. Is there anything sort of tucked away in the uh, Hebrew of Isaiah 66 that could imply that these corpses are actually like experiencing something? No, nothing at all. The, 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 um, the idea that what Isaiah might be describing is something that is either metaphorically described as a corpse or something else, where that comes from is um, a paraphrase of it from Between the Testaments by an author named Judith, um, in which it says they will have, uh, the worms will feed on their flesh forever and they will weep and cry forever. Um, but here's the thing. Jesus doesn't quote Judith, number one. Number two, Judith is just one voice among many in intertestamental Judaism, um, so other voices of which uh, uh, clearly taught annihilationism. You find it all throughout the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. Um, mm. And so there's no basis. Isaiah is there's no basis at all whatsoever for thinking that Isaiah is talking about conscious beings. Um, and the only evidence for reading it otherwise is, is extremely dubious. I appreciate that. Sorry, sure. I kind of interrupted your flow. Was That's there, right. Is there anything okay. else with Dan's question? Well, worth, I think I've got three more texts. Got three to go more to go. That's right. Okay. Yeah, we, I'm just aware of, of time. So I like, know. I see that. There, there's so much of this topic. We will have to have you on again. But yeah, let's go for those because they are big. Everyone throws out Revelation 2015, uh, 2010, isn't it? But yeah, go go for it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll try to go through these pretty fast. Matthew 25, 41 and 46. Eternal fire in verse 41 is a, is a phrase that Jesus has already used. He used it earlier in Matthew 18, 8 and 9 as a parallel for the Gehenna of fire. And that word Gehenna comes from this valley that I just described a moment ago from Jeremiah 7, where God promises that he will slay his enemies and they will be left unburied and be eaten up by fire and, and or sorry, consumed by scavenging beasts and birds. Um, he he, he he says one in that text, he says, this valley will no longer be called the valley of the son of Hinnom, but rather the valley of slaughter. Um, and then he goes on to describe what I just got done describing. So when Jesus says Gehenna of fire, that's the picture that he's evoking, the death, the slaying of God's enemies um, by irresistible divine fire from heaven, the likes of which slayed the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. So eternal fire doesn't mean fire in which immortals burn forever. It means fire that can't be put out and therefore destroys what's put into it. And eternal punishment is in, is yes, it lasts every bit as long as eternal life. The adjective Ionios, it's the same adjective both applied to uh, colossus, meaning punishment, and zoe, meaning life. And by the way, zoe does not mean a special kind of life. It just means life. And that's why, for example, in, in Luke 16, in the parable or story of Lazarus and the rich man, um, Abraham tells the rich man in that scene, in your life, you experienced good things. And the word is zoe. Here's an unsaved wicked person whose life is said to be Zoe. So so, so, it, so Ionios is eternal, both for Colossus meaning punishment and Zoe meaning life. But here's the thing. It's precisely the fact that it's either punishment or life that means that eternal life can't also, sorry, eternal punishment can't also be eternal life. Mm -hmm. So the only, the only punishment that lasts forever that does not also include ongoing everlasting life 
is the punishment of everlasting death. And by death, I don't mean the process of dying. I mean the result of that process, not having life anymore. It's, it's a privative punishment, like the punishment of a fine. The punishment of a fine isn't the process of having your money taken away. It's the result of that process. It's not having money anymore. And in the same way, the death penalty is, is not having life anymore. And if you don't have life anymore for all eternity, then you have suffered an everlasting punishment. So once again, Matthew 25, 41 to 46, not only doesn't challenge our view, it actually bolsters our view and challenges the tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, Revelation 20, or 14, 9 to 11. Revelation records a kind of vision that we Westerners um, don't often, we're not often acquainted or familiar with. We tend to think that a prophetic vision in scripture is one in which a prophet literally sees the future as if a camera had captured it. But that's not how visions work all throughout scripture. Every, all prophetic visions in scripture foretell the future by means of symbols. That's how the prophets are told what the future will be. They're shown symbols. And so the question we have to ask ourselves when we look at what John describes in Revelation 14 is what do those symbols mean? And we don't have John or his or an angel interpreting it for us there, but we do have a couple of other things we can look at that tell us what that means. One of those things is that all is it all the symbols that converge in that passage, drinking God's wrath, uh, being tormented in fire and sulfur, and smoke rising forever. All of those symbols converge elsewhere in this same book. In Revelation chapter 18, we see this picture of this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute riding on the back of a beast. She's got Mystery Babylon written on her forehead, or maybe she's just got Babylon and the author says it's mystery. But in any event, she, that is this conscious blood-drunk prostitute, um, she is described as being made to drink of God's wrath in Revelation 18. She is multiple times described as being tormented in fire in Revelation 18. And then at the beginning of chapter 19, a hallelujah chorus cries out, Smoke will rise from her forever and ever. But when an angel tells John what, what, it's going, what is going to happen to the entity symbolized by that woman, toward the end of chapter 18, the angel throws a millstone into the sea and says, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and be found no more. See, all these pictures of, of torment and fire and sulfur, of drinking God's wrath, of smoke rising forever, these are pictures that converge to symbolize obliteration, death, destruction, much like what happens when we see a mushroom cloud rising from what we know is an atomic blast. Right? We, 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 we see that, and what it evokes in our minds and in our emotions is death and devastation. And that's mm-hmm. how those symbols converge in Revelation. And, Re- and John's vision isn't the first to use them in this way. So, for example, in Isaiah 34, uh, 10, or 35, 10, uh, the, the citation is, lo- uh, I, I don't remember which one, but anyway. I think you're right. 3410. Uh, Smoke will rise forever, according to that text, day day and night from the burning remains of of the city of Edom. Mm -hmm. Right? The the smoke rising forever is a picture of devastation, death, and destruction. And, And even earlier than that, um, the day after Abraham, uh, after, the day after God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven, in Genesis 19, Abram goes and looks out on the plains, and he sees smoke rising as if from a furnace. See, both within Revelation and in the wellspring whence this symbolism comes, the symbols communicate destruction and obliteration and death, not everlasting torment. 
And then lastly, Revelation 20, 10 to 15. Yes, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet, John sees tormented forever and ever in a lake of fire. And then he sees resurrected humans thrown into that lake of fire too. Yes, the, the vision depicts or portrays everlasting torment. But the question, once again, is what do these symbols mean? They might mean that people will suffer forever. But what does the context tell us? What does the interpretation tell us? What do all the factors that go into grammatical historical exegesis tell us? Well, for one thing, the vision is interpreted by John and God himself, John in Revelation 20:14 and God in Revelation 21:8. And what they both say is that the lake of fire is the second death. And this is stock uh, biblical uh, biblical way of interpreting visions. So when um, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, he says the seven cows in your dream are seven years. Um, John himself in Revelation is told by an angel that the seven heads of the beast are seven kings. So when John and God himself say that the lake of fire is the second death, they're not telling you, hey, if you want to know what the second death looks like, go look at that lake of fire. No, that's the opposite of what the author's trying to do. It's if you want to know what that lake of fire symbolizes, it's the second death. And in the, in the uh, Aramaic Targums, which is the only Jewish literature in which the phrase second death is used besides this book, the phrase second death, and in some of these places it's connected to the word Gehenna as well, by the way, um, it means just that, literally dying a second time and not living in the age to come. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and then on top of that, death and Hades are thrown into that lake of fire as well. And death and Hades aren't abstract concepts here. Um, they symbolize them, but what they are in the vision are horsemen. If you go back and look in uh, Revelation chapter 6, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse is death, and Hades follows him. It's sort of like a knight and his squire. So just like the devil, the beast, false prophet, and resurrected humanity, death and um, Hades in the vision are conscious entities, and they too are thrown out like a fire, and we should assume they too are tormented forever and ever. But what does that symbolism mean? Well, in Revelation 21.4, God tells us, he says, Hathanatas uk estai eti, death shall be no more. Mm. Which is the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death will be the last enemy to be destroyed. The verb katargeo, meaning to cause to cease to happen. The whole message of scripture is that death is going to be annihilated. And that's mm. what being thrown into the lake of fire and tormented symbolizes. And on and on and on I could go. I could say so yeah, much more about all four of those so texts, good. but hopefully that's a start. That, that's great. And, and I think that's it. That Once you start digging, it, it does become what you've already said. It becomes a these these passages that are thrown at the condition list you hold a consistent exegetical framework for all those passages you'll come out more inclined towards conditionism uh, it's interesting what you were saying that mark 9 was your passage for, for me it's john three sixteen. Mm. That, um dan challenged me on with what parish means and that's what sort of opened the rabbit hole for me was that uh, yeah that's a good one too <laughs> Although I will say, usually I think that that's a verse that we conditionalists discover the significance of after becoming so convinced of conditionalism. I know that wasn't the case for you, but for me, mm. I had ways of explaining that. And, and it wasn't until after becoming a conditionalist that I saw the connection there with the verses immediately before it and, and fit it into this larger uh, system systematic um, that I realized the significance of that verse. But you're right. Th there are all sorts of texts that bring us conditionalists into the fold. Yeah. Could, could we um, just, I know we've got like 10 minutes to try and wrap up. Could I do it? Could we do a couple of sort of rapid fire questions and you just have to try and answer them as best sure. as possible? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and I will just say, just for Callum who's listening, this is an Austrian shirt. You're right. Um, just uh, disconnect. Um, it is also just uh, complimented Chris there with the uh, oh, Chris powerlif- powerlifting videos are impressive. There you go. Those are from like 10 years ago. In competition, I, I, I squatted uh, about 515 pounds. I benched like 345 and I deadlifted like 540. But that was, like I said, 10 years ago. I don't know if I could do nice. half that now. But thanks, Callum. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so a few things. are One, one, one common objection is that um, uh, the annihilation is really just sort of uh, predicated on a kind of a emotional preference for comfort, the avoidance of uh, something horrible like ECT. And someone like we talked about before we started is someone as, you know, I'm sure we all respect as William Lane Craig would, has, has made that case as well. How would you yeah. respond? Well, I would say, number one, it's simply not true for most, for many of us. Um, for me, emotions have always pulled in the other direction, back toward eternal torment, because of what I said it would mean for me to change my mind in the conservative evangelical spheres that I run in. Um, for most other conditionalists, they be, they question the traditional view because of the emotions you're describing. It's not like they're, oh, I've got these emotions, so okay, I'm going to go find some other thing to believe. No, it's like, it's I've got these emotions, I think I bear the divine image, I think that God is at work in my heart, and this seems incongruous to me. So maybe it's worth revisiting the biblical data to see if it teaches something else, and it ends up being the Bible that convinces them. So no, it's just simply not true. It's simply not mm-hmm. true that emotions are the fundamental um, motivator for this view, with a few possible exceptions like Clark Pinnock. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, going back to Second Thessalonians 1, 9, obviously it's uh, punished with eternal aeonios, destruction, and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Um, and J.I. Packer would say that um, the fact that it says that exclusion takes out the idea of extinction because you have to exist to be excluded. So how would you how would you respond to that? Well, number one, as we've already discussed, the text says nothing about exclusion. Um, that's a poor translation um, done by um, biased translation translation committees or one such committee, maybe two. Um, but secondly, what happens if you separate a branch from a tree? And I, I made this point earlier. It doesn't go on existing forever separated from the tree. It loses the, the life-giving, it loses access to that life-giving sap that would have kept the branch alive. So sure, yeah, um, what will bring about the everlasting destruction of the wicked is they're being separated from the source of all life but i don't see how that helps the traditional view okay um so a lot of people so most sort of popular uh, it's been raised recently in sort of american evangelicalism uh, by Lisa childs in her, in her book um where she she talks about annihilationism so is is uh, i've heard this a lot before is that a lot of people argue that conditionism is kind of a gateway drug to more progressive christianity is would, would that be the case if you become no. more progressive and, and less, <laughs> uh, less conservative and, and traditional in your you know ethical moral uh, theological beliefs uh, no with an asterisk and what i mean by that is it's no if what if what gets you to conditionalism is a commitment to the authority of scripture and its proper exegesis, which was the case with me and has been the case with many others like Edward Fudge and John Stott and a host of others. Um, But 
it is conceivable that somebody could become a believer in conditionalism for less laudable reasons, like emotions, like sentimentality, maybe even like um, philosophical speculation. And if one's authority, if, if the thing that drags somebody into conditionalism are those kinds of things, I don't know what would stop those things from dragging them even further into okay. other problem, uh, into problematic beliefs. But I don't think that's the majority of conditionalists, and there have been actually some universalists who've come back, who've come to conditionalism, um, precisely because they see it fitting the biblical data better. Um, a member, a former member of the Rethinking Hell team, who's now a friend of the team named Nick Quint, he's a good example. He went from universalism to conditional immortality. So yeah, that, that slippery slope argument just does not hold up. Um, yeah. Phil, are there any other questions from the chat that we yeah. haven't? Uh, there's, there's not one. There's one from the chat, which I will bring in, in a moment, but I think one big one for, for me that I engaged was that um, well, conditionalism softens the need for evangelism or it, it, it leads to a softening um, of evangelism. How, how, have you come across that? Would you have any? Of yeah. yeah, yeah, of course I've come because that's one of the common um, red herrings and and and, and uh, straw men that, that people throw out there. Look, um, imagine somebody saying that John Stott didn't have a heart for evangelism. I mean, that's yeah. absurd. It's yeah, nonsense. Yeah. And it's not just John Stott. John Wenham, Basil Atkinson, and a host of other conditionalists throughout history, many of whom are particularly uh, UK names. So no, it doesn't. Um, and if you just think through this logically, you see why that's such an idiotic thing to say. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it is. Um, imagine if you are, imagine if you've got a loved one who is um, enslaved by an addiction to heroin, um, and you are for some reason under the misapprehension that an addiction to heroin is likely to lead to decades of living, but in abject misery. Well, if that's the conviction you have, you're, of course, going to be doing everything that you can to try to save your loved one from a life of, of decades of abject misery addicted to heroin. But now let's say that you do some research or you are talked to by a medical professional who tells you, no, 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 no. Your loved one's addiction to heroin isn't likely to lead to decades of misery. It's likely to lead to death. And now imagine being somebody who, upon hearing that news, says, oh, okay. That's not so bad. You love to go ahead and keep getting addicted, keep being addicted to heroin. Of course mm. not. Mm. That's stupid. The, the <laughs> idea, uh, the idea that um, losing out on life forever and never experiencing anything ever again, never existing ever again, um, the idea that somehow eh, that's no big deal. I'm not going to evangelize people is just stupid. And I'm sorry to use the harsh word, but that's what it is. Mm. I, I don't agree. I, I'd say actually my evangelism has. I've become more confident because of this view, because it harmonizes better Old Testament, New Testament, the, the reason Christ died, life, what is life, heaven, all that has, has been sort of connected to, to this, which is partly why it's been such a big, big thing for me. Um, there's you one almost, question. No. Oh, go on, go on, Dan. No, I was just going to say, you can almost come to the opposite conclusion as well. You know, if you're looking at, uh, you know, capital punishment in prison, you know, are you going to try and work for, a, you know, trying to, you want the system to be as, uh, you know, you don't want people being, being killed uh, yeah. for, for that, for, you know, yeah. You want to keep, keep them alive for longer. Yeah. 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 Which, which kind of then gets you to universalism because you want them <laughs> to be, 
yeah. Uh, we we haven't even touched on <laughs> you haven't touched on universalism. We are going to have to get you back, Chris, and we'll have to have I'd love some to. conversation about universalism. There's there's one more question where we you said you got a hard stop at, at uh, one and a half hours, so we're almost there. But um, this, w- w- what frustration levels are you at when you <laughs> in, the, in terms of re- rejection of of the strength of the arguments and the repetition of your responses? Yeah, I mean, it, it gets frustrating, but um, but. Uh, Glenn Peoples, who I am so incredibly blessed and honored to be able to call a friend, um, he made a really good point at our very first conference back in 2014. He said that um, he said that you're 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 preaching a truth to to people that there that many many of whom are literally incapable of opening their minds to what you're saying he gave the analogy of certain um kinds of people in uh uh the civil war era america where you know about the humanity of people of color and the wickedness of enslaving them um were that were were supporters of that evil practice um uh, were they supporting wickedness? Of course, absolutely. But were did they even have the mental capacity? And by that, I, I'm not talking about smarts. I'm talking about biases, presuppositions, the way that we're raised. We, we go through decades of being influenced by these and many other kinds of influences to the point where you bring a message like, hey, enslaving people of color and mistreating them in this way is evil. They don't even have room in their mind for even considering that. Mm. And In other words, breaking through... Um, a, a, a position like this that is so entrenched and that has people such in a thro- a, 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 a chokehold without their knowledge of it is a very difficult to do. And yes, people like I, people like me do get frustrated. And, and if you're like me and you're trying to reach traditionalists with this view, you will be frustrated as well. But what we need to do is embrace the grace that God has shown us and then show that same grace to the people we're trying to reach because many of them just can't even hear us. And so we've just got to be patient and do what we can. Yeah, agreed. And that I think that goes also with how we talk about the gospel in general. Our, our response should be be that. So yeah, I think that's that's a great point to sort of start wrapping up on. Dan, is there any sort of last minute thing before we go to our final question? No, no, I think uh, that's covered everything. Cool. Yeah, everything. We're done with the topic out. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing more to talk <laughs> about that. there. Um, obviously, loads, loads probably has spurred loads of questions for people just engaging with this topic, possibly for the first time. Uh, we have, a, I, I promised one person who asked a question. We talk about um, near-death experiences and that sort of thing. But we haven't even, we haven't even got there. So sorry to that. Looks that, like we're going to have uh, to have part two. We're going to have to have that. And uh, Chris, it's been a pleasure. I just, just before we close out, is there? Can you just? Give us a couple of resources, obviously your own as well, that would help dig in. You've talked about rethinkinghell.com, which is an excellent resource, and I highly recommend anyone go there. Where else can people go? Who else should we listen to? Um, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel is great. I'd highly encourage people to check out that. There's this um, little YouTube channel called The Hell Project that I think I would encourage people to check out as well by kind. some <laughs> by some weirdo named Phil Duncalf. Yeah, um, someone else. 
And then, uh, and then lastly, I'll just say chrisdate.info. Um, that's my mm -hmm. website, and it's got access to journal articles, books, and all sorts of stuff I've done on the topic and other topics as well. Um, and it, there's a contact form as well as my, my, my email address listed at that website. So if people want to get a hold of me, I'd be happy to recommend still other resources. Perfect. And don't forget your books, so Rethinking Hell, Essentialism. Oh, yeah. yeah. This thing right here. Actually, both of these. So this is Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism. You can find it on Amazon. It's got excerpts from John Stott and Clark Pinnock and a bunch of other conditionalists. And then this is called A Consuming Passion, Essays on Hell and Immortality in Honor of Edward Fudge. That's also available on Amazon. It's also available in, on, in Logos Bible Software, by the way. Um, and it's much more new and fresh material. But very both are excellent books, and I'd love for people to check them out. Definitely recommend them. Uh, thank you, Chris. Just aware of your time, want to honor that. So we're going to wrap up fairly quickly here. Um, if you guys would like to continue uh, supporting us, we, we uh, have a patreon.com forward slash critical witness. You can help cover the costs of, of running this and the, the tech and potentially building up some other aspects of what we do at critical witness. And uh, just thanks for watching. We, we, we're glad to be here. Glad to be able to talk to people like Chris, who who know more than us, and uh, and and are good fun. Uh, so hope you you've enjoyed that. If you've got questions and you want us to talk to Chris again with certain topics in mind, feel free to comment on this video. Send us an email. Go to our website. You can find all that information as well. So on that note, thanks very much, Chris. We'll see you again soon. And thanks everyone for listening. I look forward to it. Are you not in the good Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you like what you hear please do give us a subscribe on youtube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback get in touch let us know what you think if you really enjoyed the content and want to support it find us on patreon.com